We have always practiced something that I call transformative law, which is that in every case we try to find a way to make a change so that this doesn't happen to somebody else. That's Randy McGinn, high-profile trial attorney and senior partner at McGinn, Montoya, Love & Curry. And the way we typically do it is we'll say to the defendant, look, we'll start settlement negotiations at $5 million if you make no changes. If you make the following 10 changes, we'll start settlement negotiations at $2 million. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Randy McGinn to discuss what separates good trial lawyers from great ones, how to leverage skeptics and naysayers as fuel for growth, and why accepting responsibility for your decisions and outcomes is necessary to making your vision a reality. You want a dream to happen? You've got to make it happen. No one's going to make that happen for you. And so that's what I figured out early on. In fact, Michael, somebody, some older lawyer said to me, how did you learn how to do all this stuff? Like, did you have a mentor? I'd no, I didn't because there weren't any. And you just figure it out on your own. And, and of course, you make a lot of mistakes along the way. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Randy McGinn is one of the most accomplished and respected attorneys in the nation. She's also the first female president of the Inner Circle of Advocates, a group of the top 100 trial lawyers in the country. Randy has built a reputation as a force to be reckoned with, both in and out of the courtroom. I began our conversation by asking Randy what shaped her into the person she is today. I think a lot of it's just genetics, that you end up being born smart and lucky in a family um, where you have unconditional love. The truth is, everything that I ever became or ever did is because my mother loved me unconditionally, and I knew that from the moment I was born. And that gives you sort of a foundation to build everything else on, right? Because you have been accepted and loved, and you think you can do anything. And that's sort of where it started, was right there. After that, every experience, every job, teaches you something that you use in the future. So waitressing taught me how to talk to people, make them comfortable. Being a journalist taught me how to tell stories. And journalism is really sort of what led me into being a lawyer because I was looking for a way to have more people read my stuff. I was working as a newspaper reporter and was sending in spec articles in my 20s and getting instant rejection letters, just rejection letter after rejection letter, and realized that they weren't even reading it, you know? And so I called my uncle, who's a professor at Harvard, and said, look, they're not reading my stuff. And he says, 
well, why should they read your stuff? You're just some young punk kid from, you know, New Mexico. Why should they even open it up and read it? He said, you know, if you got an advanced degree, people would read your stuff. So I went to law school for the completely morally bankrupt reason that I wanted people to read my stuff. I wanted to agree. I looked, and by the way, Michael, I looked at medical school. I said, no, no, that seems too hard to have an advanced degree. So I'm going to go to law school. That seems easier. And that's how I got to law school. And then by accident, I sort of went to law school and then found out when I was there that it was what I love to do. It was storytelling on steroids, right? That not only did you get to write the story when you were a trial lawyer, but you got to produce it, investigate it, star in it. And if you did it well, at the end, there's sort of this verbal alchemy that happens that you turn somebody's true life story into justice. And I mean, there was nothing better than that. I said, I have by accident found the place I need to be. And that's how I ended up becoming a lawyer. So during your upbringing, did you ever feel that perhaps you were, you were different in any way? Perhaps you thought differently or you behaved differently? I recall reading that you know, when you were in high school, you bullied your way onto the boys' tennis team. That's something that's fairly uncommon, right? I just always thought I could do whatever I wanted to do. And again, I give my mom credit because that's all from, because my mother loves me, you know? Like, I, I can do anything, right? So when they said, you can't play tennis because there's no girls' team, I said, well, I'm just going to go on the boys' team. And I'm just, I'm just going to show up. I'm going to keep showing up every day until you let me on. And they let me on the team, you know? So, so I, I haven't ever been able to take no for an answer. And in fact, it has the opposite effect on me, Michael. When somebody says, well, you can't do that, it makes me want to do it even more. That's probably the, the perverse aspect of my personality. So... I see it as a challenge and then I try even harder to do the thing that I'm told I can't do. When you look back, it, it surely it seems like it hasn't been a very easy road or at least, as you said, there was a lot of luck involved. But then from what I recall reading, you started your legal career off by giving birth to your daughter. I think it was the day before your bar exam? The day before the three-day bar exam, yes. And she was actually due the day of the bar exam. So she was very cooperative in coming the day before. And luckily she was only a four-hour labor. So that's why I could hop up out of the hospital bed and go take the bar exam the next day. But, you know, it's not that big of an accomplishment because I had the best excuse in the world for flunking. It was like all the pressure was off me, Michael. I felt like over the three days, I sat on big pillows and then just took the bar exam. But I felt like there was no pressure because if I flunked, no one would say, oh, you didn't study. They'd say, oh, well, you had that baby. That's why you flunked. So I felt like all the pressure was off. <laughs> so it made it easier for me in a weird way. And I want to hear about just your experience even in law school. So when you got there, did you feel like, okay, I'm in the right place. This is my calling. This is what I've set out to do. Was that the experience or was it something different? Not when I first got there. Because remember, I was there under the wrong pretenses. I wasn't there to be a lawyer. I was there to have people do my writing. And I felt kind of like, you know, the imposter syndrome that everybody feels. So, And then the first week of law school, the end of the first week, one of our professors said... I'd like to introduce you to one of your classmates. And the way it appeared to me at the time in my sort of insecure state was he called on one of our number and this guy stood up and sort of gave the Gettysburg Address extemporaneously. And now, in hindsight, I realized that the... And, and knowing the guy that was from my class, who, who was a guy who had like two masters and a PhD and all this stuff, that he would have been told by the teacher and he would have prepared for weeks to give this talk. But at the time, it seemed like this guy just stood up and 
golden words came out of his mouth. And at that moment, I thought, oh, holy cow, am I in the wrong place? I mean, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. And, and I'm weighing over my head and this guy with all the PhDs and what am I doing here? And it wasn't until about a year and a half into law school that I started getting some of the trial practice classes and sort of found my place and learned to stand up and talk and not fall over and that kind of stuff and just really loved it and found the storytelling aspect of it that had been my journalism career. And journalism is the best training to be a trial lawyer because you do the same kind of things. You investigate it, you find this big steaming pile of facts, and from that steaming pile of facts, you have to reach in and pull out the heart of the story and then try to tell it to somebody else in a way that makes a point. And so that's what journalism is, and that fit perfectly in, in trial work and jury work. So, no, it took me a while. It, was the first, and I never did figure out what they wanted on those exams, you know. The Socratic method was very, very hard for me. I just wanted them to tell me the answer, and I'd memorize it, and I'd give it back to them. That's what you do in undergraduate school, right? And they kept saying, no, that's, no, that's, there's no answer, really. And, and as painful as it was, it taught me how to think differently and how to take a problem and turn it around on all sides and, and analyze it. So it, it hurt, but it helped. I think there was about a dozen women in your graduating class and they were going to be trial lawyers. But today, you're not the only one that's just a trial lawyer. I think you're the only one that's still practicing law. So I'm just curious, why do you believe that is? For women of my age and vintage, you couldn't play sports. There was no sports for women when I was growing up. Not soccer, not anything. And um, what sports teaches you is how to lose. And the only place that women competed as I was growing up, was in the classroom where if you studied hard enough, you got an A. And so what happened is many of the women that I went to law school with that were going to be trial lawyers quit after they lost their first case because they thought it was them that they hadn't worked hard enough or hadn't done it right. When in fact, if you've played sports like I got to do because I just said I'm playing, I don't care, I'm going to play sports, you learn that losing isn't always your fault. In fact, a lot of times the wind blows the wrong way, the ref gives a bad call, and then you lose some, and then you get up the next morning and you go on. So you learn how to lose from sports. And one of the really encouraging things, and why I think we're finally starting to see women come into the profession, is that women coming up now have played sports and know how to lose. You know, know how to win, but know how to lose too. And if you're gonna try cases, you're gonna lose some. And you got to be able to do that and then get up the next day and go on. In that case, like, how do you shake off a loss? Oh, well, by the way, I hate it. Hate it. It's, you don't have to learn to like it. Come home, you know, put the covers over my head for about 24 hours. And then the sun comes up the next day and you get up and you, you go on to the next case. And fortunately, Michael, I haven't had to do it very often. So I've, I don't like it so much that I work really hard not to lose. So we, I've tried over 130 cases and have lost, I think, six. So that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. With over 130 cases, is there a particular case that sticks out, maybe even early in your career, where you're, at that moment you realize, okay, this is what I'm meant to do, and this goes beyond, of course, even the money for me? There have been a number of them. And what I learned early on, contrary to popular belief, sort of the, the notion, I think, in the public is that people can't wait for something bad to happen and then they rush to the lawyer and say, how much money do I, am I going to get? And I can tell you, I've never had that happen in 40 years of practicing law. And particularly where somebody has been seriously catastrophically injured 
or has lost a loved one, they never ask about the money. The first time I realized that was probably a couple years into my practice when a woman's son was killed uh, in a motorcycle accident by a drunk driver. And of course, the driver who hit them only had $25,000 of insurance and they offered it up right away. And I called her and said, you know, great news, we've gotten this case settled. And she wouldn't come pick up the check, all right? And finally, you know, called her and called her and called her. Now two months has gone by. Finally, she comes in and sits across the table from me and I put the check on the table and she won't pick it up. And she just bursts into tears and says, how can I take money for my son dying? And that's when I realized it's not about the money for those people. It is about making a difference. And what I said to her was, then take the money and give it to Mothers Against Drunk Driving or take the money and do something to stop drunk driving. And from that moment on, early in my practice, we have always practiced something that I call transformative law, which is that in every case, we try to find a way to make a change so that this doesn't happen to somebody else. And we've gotten about 40% of the defendants that we've sued, of the corporate defendants that we've sued, to make changes over the years. And the way we typically do it is we'll say to the defendant, look, we'll start settlement negotiations at $5 million if you make no changes. If you make the following 10 changes, we'll start settlement negotiations at $2 million. Now, it's a very interesting offer to them, and it does a couple things. One, it tells you instantly what kind of company it is. I mean, in truth, if it were a good company, they would have already made the changes before you sued them to make sure this didn't happen again. But we've never had that happen, by the way. Never had them say, oh, on my own, I'm going to change this so somebody else doesn't get killed. So about 40% of them say, okay, we'll, we'll make the changes. The other 60% say, you know, if we make the changes, it's coming out of our bottom line. We're going to have to pay for it. But if you hit me for a big verdict, the insurance company's going to pay for it. So I'm going to start at the higher number because we're not going to make any changes. When somebody on the other side of you does that, Michael, they've shown you exactly who they are, haven't they? And now you have no qualms about taking it to them and getting the biggest verdict you can possibly get to make an impression, not just on them, but on their insurance company. And so, so it's, a, it's sort of a litmus test of who you're dealing with on the other side. And like I say, if they don't want to make the changes, fine. We'll go get you, Okay. Yeah, I remember reading on your website, you know, there's this quote that, you know, the harder we work, the luckier we get. But you also state that you spend anywhere from two to 300 hours outside of the courtroom for every hour in the courtroom. What does the preparation look like typically for you? It's just a tremendous amount of work. And most of it comes from the investigation, even just in truck collisions or auto accident cases where the police do the investigation almost always they don't have the resources to do the kind of investigation that we do. So we go do another investigation, and we usually find many more witnesses, many more things at the scene, including pieces of tires that have been shredded. That's important. And the other thing that's really important for trialers, which which a lot of trialers don't do, is you always go to the scene of wherever this happened. Always, always, always. Because there are things, even if the wreck is long over or whatever, the explosion or whatever it is that has happened has been long over. There are things that you learn by going to the place where it happened that you wouldn't know if you hadn't been there. So for example, there was a intersection out by our jail that was put way, way outside of town. And a 
jail guard ran the stop sign and hit our kid who was coming out of this racetrack at night, just ran the stop sign and killed him, going about 75, 80 miles an hour, hit him sideways, killed our kid. We went out to the scene of where this was, and the jail, you know, was sort of a remote location. But as we stood there at the scene, every car, all the police cars that were going to the jail and all of the prison vans and everybody all ran the stop sign. They were, as we're standing out there, we're just watching these cars just run the stop sign, run the stop sign, run the stop sign, run the stop sign. And we said, holy cow, what's going on here? And what had happened is the police department and the jail guards were upset when they moved the jail so far out of town. And so when the city didn't listen to them and still bought this property and built the jail out there, they made up for it by just not following the laws as far as speeding and also running this stop sign because they didn't want to take the time out of their beat to get to the jail back and forth. So we set up a video camera right there on the corner of this intersection and videoed, you know, like 94 days of police cars and prison vans running this stop sign and had a claim against not just the driver who ran the stop sign, but against the police department for violating the law and not enforcing the law. And so we would have never known that had we not gone out to the scene of the crash, you know. So it's that kind of stuff. Randy's success in the courtroom is no accident. In fact, it's a direct result of diligent preparation and a commitment to providing her clients with the best outcomes possible. I asked Randy, what does she believe makes a great trial lawyer? Mm. So he or she who tells the best story wins. That's how it works. That's the secret to winning cases. And so if you're going to be a great trial lawyer, You have to become a master storyteller, and you do that by first being a student of storytelling. And so if you are watching a movie that has a, you know, that affects you greatly, or if you're reading a book that touches you in some way, you need to break down why it is that that book or movie was so effective, and what about it what about the story was effective? So, so things like what point of view is the story told from? And what is the most effective point of view? What kind of chronology do they use? Do they tell it from beginning to end? Do they start in the middle? Do they start and then go have a flashback? How did it work? Or did they have two-track storytelling, sort of the Jaws way of sto- of the movie, right? You hear the, the music, dun-dun-dun-dun, and you see the little person playing in the water, and then you hear the dun-dun-dun-dun, and you don't even see the shark, you just hear the music, person playing in the water, dun-dun, and now you see the fin come up, and, and you're saying, oh my gosh, it's building tension as you see this thing coming to each other. So, you see the, how effective that was, and you say, can I use that in the courtroom to tell a story? Can I say... Here is the drunk driver slamming it down. Here is our little family getting ready to go to church. Here is the drunk driver having another one. Here is the family coming to church. You tell the story in a way, it's building suspense, and the jury knows what's going to happen before it ever happens. And so that's what I tell young lawyers, is that you've got to learn how to tell stories. And if, if you're just terrible at it, the best advice I can give people is to sit down with little kids, as you know, Michael, because they won't put up with a bad story, right? <laughs> Whether it's a bad book that you're reading or whatever it is, and read stories to little kids, because you have to not just tell the story, you have to do the voices, and you have to have the person pop out, and you have to keep their interest, and so it's a great way of learning how to tell stories. And actually, that's my earliest memories are, I was the oldest of five kids in like the 50s, 
at when they had those cocktail parties, my parents would have cocktail parties, and my job was to stay back there with my brothers and sisters and keep them entertained so they didn't disturb the party. So I would have to tell them stories, and I would make up stories in the back room and tell them all these stories to keep them entertained. So that's how you learn how to do it. You're paying it forward as, as a female trial attorney yourself to other women as well. And when you're mentoring them and, and per, perhaps even putting out educational content, you know, some of the things that I've seen is you encouraging them to lean into their authenticity. Why has this been a barrier for many? And then why do you encourage that? Because law school messes you up, right? Law school tells you you have, this is what a lawyer is. You get this lawyer in your head. By the way, it got me too. When I first started practicing law, there weren't any women lawyers. There were only guys right? So what you did was you dressed like the guys. So I had a black suit and I had a dark blue suit and they even had stupid little women ties. I don't know if you remember those little rosette things that you had, that were like female versions of ties. You know, I don't know why guys wear ties. They're horrible. Anyway, so there I am. And then I would put my hair up in a bun, you know, and go into court in this very severe suit. And until I saw myself on TV once. I was working at the DA's office and I saw myself on TV and I said, oh my God, I look like my grandfather. It's horrible. And decided that's not really me at all. And then started finding a way I could be myself in the courtroom as far as how I dressed and and my style and just had to do it on my own because there weren't any other women lawyers. I don't wear suits in the courtroom. I think jurors don't like lawyers much or what they think of as lawyers. And they look in the courtroom for someone who is like them, who speaks in language that they speak as opposed to legal phraseology and big words, and who looks more like them. So my outside persona is I don't wear suits. I mean, the truth is I'd wear jeans all the time in court if they'd let me, but they won't let me do that. So what I do is I wear dresses and sweaters. That's what I'm comfortable in, and it looks professional enough, but it doesn't look like a lawyer. It looks like a person maybe even a, one of your school teachers from when you were in, in grade school, you know? And when they look around for somebody to explain to them what's going on in this very strange environment for them, they look to me and not the guy in the suit. People are looking for somebody else to be that trailblazer, I think, or someone else to be that example or that inspiration. What do you think made that person you? Well, no one is coming to save you. You've got to save yourself, right? Or if you want to do something... It's not like I learned when I was a kid that Prince Charming is going to come along and sweep me on my feet and make all my dreams come true, right? You want a dream to happen? You've got to make it happen. No one's going to make that happen for you. And so that's what I figured out early on. In fact, Michael, somebody, some older lawyer said to me, how did you learn how to do all this stuff? Like, did you have a mentor? No, I didn't because there weren't any. And you just figure it out on your own. And, and of course, you make a lot of mistakes along the way. You try out something and it doesn't work. And, and when you're a young lawyer, what young lawyers do is they pattern themselves after other lawyers, right? So now that there are some women role models, and as a young lawyer, that's okay. You can try on this person's style and see if it fits you. But if it doesn't, then reject it and find your own personality that works for you. Because something that works for one lawyer is not necessarily going to work for you. But it's okay to try it on and see and then say, no, no, that's not me. And then try on something else. That's how you figure out who you are when you're a young person and you're not quite sure who you are yet, you know? So, and I just had to keep doing it because there wasn't anybody to, to copy. <laughs> so I just had to try different things and see what worked. Well, I think it's doing things your way. And, and even on that note, I mean, there's practicing law and then there's running a law firm. I'm curious, what led to the decision to start your own firm and how would you do things differently? Well, I wouldn't do things differently. But um, so I started my own practice 
when I was about five years out, I worked in a, a big insurance defense firm for my first year to pay off my student loans, to say, oh, I can't be an insurance defense lawyer, went to the DA's office, was a prosecutor for three years, and then went to a small firm where I got my own cases, where I got about 30 of my own cases, and then said, I, I want to go out and have my own practice. And I, and I went to my bank, my longtime bank, to this woman loan officer who was sitting across the table from me. And I said, here's my, look, I've got this business plan, and here's my 30 cases I'm going to take with me, and here's when their money's going to come in. And I was applying for a $10,000 line of credit, which at the time, Michael, seemed like all the money in the world to me. It just seemed like so much money. You know, and had practiced my presentation and did all that and gave her all these numbers and things. And this older woman leans across the desk and pats me on the arm and says, honey, I think you better keep working for somebody else for a while. And I said you know, I think I need a new bank is what I need. And went and found a new bank and got a $10,000 line of credit on my own. And at that time, my daughter was five, you know, and I was a single mother. So it was like, this was craziness. I mean, I sh she probably was right. I probably shouldn't have done it. That's why I say, when, as soon as somebody says, no, you can't do it, Michael, that's my personality. I say, oh, oh yeah? Well, just watch this. Watch this. I can do it. And, and went out and, and then ne never looked back and now have a firm with nine lawyers in it. It's been quite a ride. From the other perspective of the people that were, that were saying no, because there's like the expression sometimes when, when people say that you can, it really means they can't. But it seems like there's a lot of people that either gave up on their dreams or just never believed those dreams were possible. Like, do you, do you believe that that was a factor? And then obviously with your upbringing, you did not feel that way. Well, I don't know. It's kind of sad that people would think, including the saddest thing is this, here's this woman loan officer who says to a young woman who has this great dream, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to squash your dream. <laughs> and I, I don't know if that was bitterness on her part or some bank rule. I don't who, know, who the heck knows what it was. But there weren't a lot of women, well, there weren't any women lawyers who had their own firm back then. And so, so people just can't see the vision. I think they have blinders on. You know, they're so busy looking down at whatever they're working on immediately they can't look up and see the horizon. And I mean, the whole reason I live in New Mexico is because you can see for hundreds of miles. So you can see not just your future, but you can look back and see where you've been and where you're going. And there are no limits to what you can do. And when you started the firm, what was really the vision for the firm at that time? Like when you started versus oh, no what vision. it is today? Oh, no vision. <laughs> no vision. <Okay. laughs> just, will anybody come and hire me? When you first start, you hang up the shingles. Gosh, I wonder if anybody will come and hire me. And and then and then of course nobody knows you, and so you you just um, you just start taking lots of cases. And the better you do, the more people want to hire you, you know. And you take when you're a young lawyer, you take the impossible cases because the good cases go to the people like me now. You know, we get cases because of our reputation, and so you're you're having to prove every time you go into court that you can do the job. But I kind of miss those days in a weird way, Michael, because back then I was underestimated. Right, so I would have a case against some insurance company, and they would and they would not offer me any money, and I would say, in my little pipsqueak lawyer voice, "Well, then I'll take you to court. I'll take you to court." And they would say, "Ha ha 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 ha, go right ahead," you know, because because you were nobody. And so then you would go to court, and you just squash them. You just squash them, and you do that a couple times, you know. And now the problem is because you've I've hit somebody before. It's one thing to try to settle a case when you have no track record, but after you've hit a couple people, now they start taking you seriously. So it, it's harder now to get to trial, and it is rarer that, that I get underestimated. 
and they end up, you know, putting big wigs on the other side, big name lawyers on the other side to take me down, which is always the most fun too. But we don't get as many trials either because they're afraid and then they settle the case. And that's too bad because I love, I love trial work. So what were some of the lessons that you learned just when you were growing the firm? I mean, I imagine just that entire process, whether it came to building the team, to the culture of the firm, I'm sure there were some mistakes along the way. Like what are some of the things that stuck out? The thing that we still are working on learning, fire fast, hire slow, right? When somebody has some major problems, because my three women partners and I would always work with them and, you know, bring in counselors and try to, like, help the situation. Always. They, they, none of it ever worked out. If there is a problem employee, you should recognize that pretty early and then just say, okay, that you're, this is not a good fit and you have to go. Go find another job. As opposed to trying to, trying to you know, fit the square peg in the round hole, you know. So we're still working on that. I mean, I think hiring a good team is the hardest thing of all and finding the right people because people interview really well and then they get in and they don't fit at all, right? And so, so we now have a 90-day probationary period and we are examining in that 90-day probationary period, are they a good fit or are they not a good fit? And if they're not, then you need to go find another job and we'll find somebody else who is a good fit and then take our time to find the right fit at the front end by hiring slower as opposed to just filling a slot. So that probably is one of the, the more valuable ones. So you always hear from people when they look back that there were certain moments that were almost like catalysts behind driving a lot of transformation and, and just driving a lot of growth, like certain key moments of whether there was the career or even in their business. Looking back, do you remember any of those that it kind of took you from where you were in, in one position to really growing to another, whether it was reputational or otherwise? I'm not sure there was a moment because it happens sort of gradually. I mean, you keep building and building and building your practice and then one day you don't have to worry anymore about business coming in, you know? Although I, I still, in the back of my mind, worry about it. Having started my own... And it's, it, by the way, it's different if you start the business yourself as opposed to people that you hire because they just keep expecting business to come in, right? Even now, after 40 years of doing this, you wonder, gosh, maybe the phone will stop ringing and they'll find somebody else and they won't come and see me. But so at some point, I realized, oh, I don't really... That doesn't need to be a, a real worry anymore that people will keep coming in and we can, you know, we probably take one out of 20 cases that come in our door. And so we have the luxury that I didn't have when I very first started out of, of taking the very best cases in New Mexico and then across the country too, and picking and choosing what we want to do. And then I get to pick and choose whether I want to leave town and go try a case somewhere else or whether I want to just stay in New Mexico and try a case. And then now we can pick cases that we're passionate about. We don't have to take cases to pay the bills anymore. And so we look for cases where we can make a difference, where we can ask somebody to change their behavior, ask corporations to fix some kind of horrible problem that's killing people. And those are the kind of cases that we're interested in. And we're also, we also love where there's like a gazillion defense lawyers on the other side. So it's just our little firm and then like a whole bunch of lawyers on the other side. That's the most fun. The bigger they come, the harder they fall. You know, Michael, it's really, it's great. And then hopefully taking cases that will actually go to trial, you know, which gets rarer and rarer, unfortunately. Many trial lawyers dream of one day gaining the national reputation, trust, and credibility that affords them the opportunity to be extremely selective and take on only the most challenging and impactful cases. I asked Randy, how long did it take her to get to this point? 15 years. Yeah. I mean, it takes a long time and you do it one case at a time and then people hear about a case and they 
bring you another case and they hear about, that you do really well on that case. And the funniest, funnest part is we're getting children of clients we represented when I first started practicing law coming in to either work in our firm, which is very, very fun, you know, that they're going to become paralegals or they're becoming um, lawyers or that they have a case. And so we're getting case referrals from, you know, kids of people that we represented years ago. And, and that's uh, very fulfilling because we did such a good job and took such good care of them back then that they still remembered and it's affected them too, you know, so... So obviously the, the tide is turning and, and what are your thoughts on like the future of the legal industry? Because we're seeing more women now graduating from law school. There's a, you know, a big paradigm shift that's happening. What does the future look like to you? The most encouraging part of it is the diversity in the legal profession. Although there still isn't enough diversity among trial lawyers. Most trials are tried by guys on both sides, by the way both in big defense firms, but also on the plaintiff side. There aren't that many women trial lawyers still, although it's, that's starting slowly to change, I think. And I think that's too bad because I think women are better trial lawyers than men. I think that the juries gravitate towards believing them more because they don't look like lawyers. But I think being different in the courtroom is always an advantage. When you are the different person, you're the only African-American in the courtroom or the only Hispanic in the courtroom, the only woman in the courtroom, the jury notices that and the jury gravitates towards the person who is different rather than being biased against them. That's the person who, again, doesn't look like a lawyer and has the advantage in the courtroom. And so, so that is happening and that is changing and that is, that's wonderful. The downside is there are fewer and fewer trials. And part of that is because the Supreme Court has allowed arbitration agreements where you keep people out of the courtroom and businesses get to arbitrate rather than go in front of a jury, which I think is unconstitutional, but I think this current Supreme Court will never change that. And so for a young lawyer, it's harder to get trial experience. And you need, in order to become a great trial lawyer, in addition to learning about storytelling, you have to try cases. And there just isn't that if you go straight into civil practice for most trial lawyers. And so if you want to be a trial lawyer, I, I recommend to people that you go to the public defender's office or you go to the DA's office because you'll get a lot of trials and you'll learn all the things you need to know about the rules of evidence and how to get things in and how to stand up and talk and not have your knees shake. Before you can start working on all the fine points of trial work, I think you have to try 10 cases. For the first 10 cases, you're saying, oh my gosh, what's the next thing that happens at trial? Is this the part, is this the part where the closing argument happens? You know, you, or you're objecting and you're saying, oh, I know that's objectionable, but I can't remember what the rule number is. You know? so, so that's the first 10 trials where you're just learning the craft and how it all works. And after your first 10 trials, now you can start working on being a great speaker and trying to figure out the most persuasive way to argue to a jury and how to tell a better story and all of those things. Now you can start working on sort of the outside, external stuff after you've had 10 trials. And there are a lot of lawyers practicing out there who call themselves litigators, in, particularly in defense firms, who haven't even tried 10 cases. They'll be the senior litigator in a insura big insurance defense firm, and they haven't tried 10 cases. And that's too bad. Without a doubt, men have it easier. And for women trial lawyers, those that are attorneys that want to be trial lawyers, you know, what, what is your advice to them? When I first started practicing, I was a single mom, I would get up in the morning, feed my daughter, take her off to her daycare, try my case during the day, tell the judge I have to be out by five because I have to pick her up from daycare, would pick her up, 
go home, feed her, read her her story, give her her bath, put her to sleep, have a babysitter come, go back down to the office because there wasn't computers and work from like, you know, nine until about one or two in the morning and come back, get a couple hours sleep and get up and start all over again. So there is no balance, Michael. That is my first advice to women. There is no balance. You are going to feel like when you're at work, you're shorting your family. When you're with your family, you're shorting your job. But the person you short the most in all of this is yourself because if you want to have it all, it means you just never sleep and you just die is what happens. So my advice to people is you have to get over the guilt. You have to pay, give 100% to whatever's in front of you at the moment. So if you were at work, you can't be saying, oh, I'm so sad I'm not with my... You have to just say, I'm going to put that in my mind. I'm going to focus on this and give 100% to this. When I'm with my child, I'm going to give 100% to my child and not worry about work. I'm not going to have myself pulled in both directions. I, I will just understand there is no balance and you just can't feel guilty about it. And I will tell you, after all of that, that kind of crazy life, my daughter is an architect because she saw her mom, you know, working and supporting myself and doing all this stuff and has never criticized me for, like, where were you? Why didn't you come to this particular sports event because I went to all the ones that I could. And the, but and the other thing you got to get over is you can't be Martha Stewart perfect. So when you have to bring the snack, you don't have to bake it. You can just go to the store and buy the stupid snack and just take it because, because you don't have the time to do it. And, and, and people will, make, will try to guilt trip you over it. You say, no, I don't know. You know, I've got a job. I'm going to go buy the snack at the store. <laughs> That's it. And so, so I would say the key thing is to get rid of the guilt. I've always said there's nothing wrong with wanting what you want and, and obviously being very, very passionate about the work that you were doing. I'm curious, with your daughter, what, what impact did that make on her? Well, she, <laughs> so when school would close or when, you know, like suddenly, like they do now occasionally, more in the pandemic, suddenly they say, okay, we're just having a day off today. I didn't have anybody to watch her. There wasn't anybody in town. So, so she remembers being like four or five years old and sitting in the back of the court while I'm in trial. And I just bring a bunch of toys and just put them all around her. And in one memorable trial, I'm up cross-examining somebody or something. And you hear this little voice from the back of the courtroom. That's my mommy! <laughs> from the back of the courtroom. <laughs> because there wasn't anybody else to watch her. So you just... You just do what you can in the situation, you know, and do do the best you can. And and that's one of her memories is sitting in the back of the courtroom with all of her toys while I'm trying a case, you know. So that's her memory. And whereas when I was growing up, there was a question of whether you would become a housewife and, and work at home or whether you would work outside the home. My daughter never had any question. Well, if, why why wouldn't I have a job, you know? Why? Goodness gracious, have somebody take care of me. Are you out of your mind? I mean, that's, that was her mindset because of how she was raised. And that's made all the difference. I mean, she's just, she's just a terrific architect and very, very talented. Did not become a lawyer, although everybody asked her all the time, are you going to be a lawyer like your mom and your dad? And no. Became an architect and did, did her own path and is, is doing great. Is living in Portland, Oregon. For a lot of the men that are listening, right, whether they're trial lawyers, law firm owners, and they, let's say they want to be a part of this change, they want to empower whether they have female attorneys that they work with, what is your advice to them? There will continue to be discrimination until people start standing up against it. So when men are together in the locker room and somebody's making some comment about some women that they work with, that's some sleazy comment, even when women aren't there, for a man to say, that's not okay. 
You know, that's not okay. It's like when you're with white people and somebody makes a racist joke, you say, I'm sorry, that's not okay. And, and you may not change the racist or you may not change the sexist by saying something, but you set an example for all the other men around you that this is, this is not okay to say this. And so that's how you get rid of both racism and sexism is by standing up whenever you see it to set an example for the other people who may be around the sexist or the racist, you know? So that's what I would say. And to give them opportunities. I mean, what, what happens in a lot of these law firms is they bring in young women lawyers and they say, okay, you get to do the chick stuff. You get to do the damages witnesses because that's all the touchy-feely stuff and you're a girl and so you can do all this touchy-feely stuff. No, no, no. You need to let them be involved in every aspect of the trial and give them, you know, in their first beginning, give them one little piece or another, you know, but not just damages, not just the woman's stuff because they have to learn how to do everything in the trial. And so that's what I would say too, is to let them have every opportunity that you'd give anybody else and don't put them in a box because they're a woman. So that's my advice to the guys. What's driving you today? I mean, being arguably one of the most successful plaintiff's attorneys in the country, you don't have anything to prove to anyone. You can kind of slip into the background if you want to. You have great trial lawyers that you work with. What's, you know, what keeps you engaged? I've always been intellectually curious. So new challenges keep my interest. So we don't do the same case over and over again. We do all different kinds of cases. We do civil rights cases. We do, you know, trucking cases. We do premises liability cases. We do medical malpractice cases. The thing for me is the learning about this new area that I didn't know anything about. I once had to learn about how they manufacture canned goods and how botulism gets in cans. I had to go down to the factory and figure out how this botulism got into the cans. That kind of stuff is fascinating for me to figure it all out, figure out the problem, and now figure out how I explain to the jury how this happened and how you can prevent it from happening. And so the combination of some interesting, thorny problem and how you fix it and how you make the world safer, those are the things I like to do. And and the truth is, practicing law now is just a joy for me. We're not worried about making payroll or any of those kinds of things. It's just so much fun to be the voice of somebody who doesn't have one to represent a family or a person whose loved one's been hurt or killed and to go out in this impossible situation. I mean, because people come to us when the worst thing in their life has happened and to try to find some good coming out of it and to make a difference, to, particularly where, where somebody's child has died, that we're going to find a way that to prevent this from happening to anybody else again in the future and work with them to do that. And we we do that both in the courtroom, but then also helping them with legislation outside the courtroom to try to change the law if if the big corporation won't make the changes voluntarily. So those are the kind of things that that still I'm passionate about and our firm is passionate about. And Randy, as we come to a close, this being the the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? making the world better and safer, changing um, the corporate mindset, which is a huge challenge to undertake because the bottom line of most corporations, of course, is money. And so to get them to focus on human life rather than the bottom line makes all the difference in the world. And, and we've done that over and over and over again, both in getting training programs in hospitals so that the medical error that happened will never happen again, that we actually 
bring in people from outside and train their staffs, getting people to change products or put warning on products so that the horrible thing doesn't happen again, or redesign it, getting police officers to use lapel cameras so that they stop shooting people wrongfully. Those are the kind of things that not just change the game, it changes the world. I want to give a huge thank you to Randy McGinn for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Randy said that if you aim to be among the best in your field, balance is a myth. Success requires challenging the status quo through commitment, sacrifice, and authenticity. Yet, she's living proof that it's absolutely possible. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can leave a review and share this podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with Randy McGinn, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with best-selling author, marketing expert, and the owner of the Savannah Bananas, Jesse Cole. They all walked out, I believe, and said, I saw something I've never seen before at a baseball game. I was thoroughly entertained and it didn't have anything to do with the baseball game because we played terrible. That became our meaningful differentiator, the show, the entertainment. We're at a 1926 ballpark. They say at Cowboy Stadium where there's chandeliers and marble. We will never win that game. We will never win the best food in the game. We'll never win the nicest stadium. But I believe we could win the greatest show in sports. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Oh, 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 oh